Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. First up, he's a pastor, author, and someone who has been closely identified with the Promise Keepers men's movement. You'll gain some insight from Crawford Loretz, sharing his heart about the blessings and challenges of men's ministry. Then some encouragement from Edie Sunby, who has bravely fought against cancer and committed to physical and spiritual improvement by walking a 1,600-mile mission trail through Mexico and California. Also from the recent CBA Unite 2017 event in Cincinnati, children's author Todd Courtney, who uses rhyme to engage the minds of kids and to teach them principles consistent with Scripture. And on this edition of The Intersection, it's former ABC News science editor Michael Gillen offering a look at his new novel, Exploring Matters of Science and Faith. Next, novelist Ronald Witters spoke with me at the CBA Unite event and integrates the biblical parable of the wheat and the tares into a book about a contest that involves globalism and an attempted unification of world religions. Finally, from the Family Research Council, you'll hear some comments from Mandy and Kai who provides analysis and commentary about President Trump's recent announcement that transgender individuals would no longer be allowed to serve in the U.S. military. This is The Intersection, a production of The Meeting House. I'm Bob Crittenden. Crawford Loretz is a senior pastor of Fellowship Bible Church in Roswell, Georgia, which is outside of Atlanta. He's an author and in-demand speaker and known to many as a speaker with the Promise Keepers events in the 90s. Here he shares some elements of men's ministry, including the blessings and the challenges. This is Crawford Loretz in advance of a special event in Andalusia, Alabama, August 11th and 12th. Just the opportunity to be with people uh, who, who share the same vision and passion for seeing men develop and, and uh, being all that uh, God's called them to be. So from, from, from being a part of a group of other guys nationally who do this, it really is a, a wonderful blessing and encouragement to sit and listen to my colleagues who, who share that. And then the other thing is the response of men. You know, um, men respond to visioning and, and, and calling, and uh, there's power in these events that's going to be happening, for example, next, uh, next week. There's, there's power in these events. And to see men responding uh, to the Lord and, uh, you know, uh, crying out for help and then getting that help and making commitments and, and, uh, and then hearing later about the decisions that they've made at some of these events where God has, God has uh, reconciled them with their children or in, in their marriage or, or they've responded to a calling, something that God was telling them to do that they were a little bit hesitant or afraid to do and they got the courage to do that, do it because of a, uh, of coming to an event and being encouraged by other men or hearing a message. These things are powerfully encouraging. And I think there is a movement of, of men today in our culture, despite what's taking place and all of the negative things and the attacks on manhood and all the, the, you know, the redefinition of marriage and all these things, there is a movement of men out there. And I find that very, very encouraging. When you look at some of the challenges that are facing men today and that you are seeing in your own ministry to men, how would you describe the challenges and, and how are you seeing God work in order that men might meet those challenges they're facing? Well, I think there are any number of challenges that the men are facing. And I think uh, you know one of them has, has to do with, with focus. Uh, everybody's telling them what uh, they need to be, and and uh, 
But number one is 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 finding out the signature that God's written over the, your soul. What what is what is your purpose and um, uh, why are you here and what's God's plan and calling for your life and pressing into that and getting that degree of clarity. I think then secondly, it has to do with staying focused um, and uh, uh, being faithful with what God's called you to be. Um, I think too many of us are, are chasing things that are empty and it's that, it's that vain pursuit of, of sort of like a, um, a derailed significance we need to get back to focusing on the Lord and what he's called us to be about and to be faithful and uh, uh, with that, no matter what it, what it takes. And so showing up and uh, being men of integrity and keeping our word and not being distracted by all of the other things in, in, in this life is, is really, really pretty significant. I, I think that the call has to do with being serious about discipleship, though, um, that is one of the greatest needs that we face. And, you know, just being serious about our walk with God and what that means, what, it, what does it mean to be a reproducing follower of Jesus? And how do I look like Christ in the workplace and at home and as I raise my family and making sure that Jesus Christ is the center of everything that we say and everything that we do. And it's that simple call to Christ likeness that we continue to get pulled away from but we need to stay focused on that. Crawford Loretz here on The Intersection. You can learn more about him by going to the website, fellowshiproswell.org. This is The Intersection Podcast with Edie Littlefield-Sunby, author of a book called The Mission Walker. In our recent conversation, she related some elements of her own journey as a cancer survivor who had a very slim chance to live and who decided to walk a lengthy mission trail stretching from Mexico to California. From that conversation, this is Edie Sunbeam. It's called the El Camino Real de las Californias. Okay, it's the El Camino Real. It's, it, it's really the, the road that civilized, if you will, California, uh, starting back in the, the 1700s. And the Jesuit and the Franciscan missionaries were in, in Mexico, and they, they made their way up to California. And this old mission trail... Uh, is very historic, but it's unmapped. It's unmapped and pretty much unknown in Mexico. It's it's a cactus-choked jungle down there. Well, I had had the privilege of walking half of it. I had walked half of it, the 800 miles from San Diego to north of San Francisco, that 800 miles, and I did it as a walk of thanksgiving and gratitude after Stanford Cancer Center removed my right lung. I did it as a way to heal, Bob. I needed... it was less than six months, and I was still in some physical pain from the surgery, but I was emotionally overwhelmed, and I was spiritually, I was, I was spiritually, uh, when you're emotionally overwhelmed, it's really, really difficult to be spiritually connected. And so I knew that I needed to physically heal that lung, that, I, that, that space that was missing, that my body was used to, that I needed to pour out the overflowing of emotion, and that I needed to reconnect in a very profound way with God. And I was so grateful to God. I was so grateful. I was so thankful. So it was a walk of thanksgiving. It was a walk of gratitude. It was a walk of joy. The first, the 800 miles, the first 800 miles, I walked that in 55 days. Yeah. I walked on average 15 miles a day, 
and and it was like less than six months after they removed my right lung. It, this is not exercise. You don't just get out and walk an old mission trail. Yeah. The, the good thing about the trail from San Diego to north of San Francisco is that there are 21 old Spanish missions that go like a ladder from the coast over the mountains to the valley and then back again, a ladder all the way up, 21. So I had 21 destinations, and I had 21 um, uh, uh, missions where I could stop I could sit, I could pray in the coolness of the old adobe, where there, there, were, there were parish priests there. And even though I'm not Catholic, I was raised Baptist, but I felt the holiness of these men and this, these missions. And I could sit there and, 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 and pray, and, and, and I, could, I could absorb the holiness around me. And the, and the priest would pray and, and give, uh, give me a prayer, and they would give me food and water and shelter as I made my way up for 55 days and 800 miles of walking. When I got at the end of the, the, this 800 miles, when I got into Sonoma, north of San Francisco, I didn't want to stop walking, which is, which is uh, I was so connected with God. I was so transcendent. And when I no longer was moving, my body still felt like it was walking. And so at the end of the mission trail in Sonoma is a mission bell, and it says Loreto, Mexico, 1697, a reminder that the mission trail I had just walked from San Diego did not start in San Diego. It started in Loreto, Mexico, which is another 800 miles south of the border. And I knew right then, Bob, that if God was willing and I was able, I would go and I would try to finish my mission walk. And time intervened. It was two years cancer came back in my remaining lung. At two years later, almost exactly two years from the time I started the walk in 2013, in 2015 it came back in my remaining lung, and I knew immediately it was another wake-up call that I had to go and I had to finish my walk. And so uh, Stanford Cancer Center treated that tumor, uh, and we didn't know if we got all of the cancer in the lung, but I didn't care. I knew I couldn't wait. And so I went across the border to Tijuana, caught a Mexico flight down to Loreto, and all I had promised in Loreto, Mexico, was a mule for two weeks, a pack mule for two weeks, and a vaquero, which is a Mexican cowboy. And the only ones who know this old, this old mission trail down there are the cowboys who actually are out there in it, in the wilderness, uh, on this trail. They know where it is, and they have the machetes. They can hack through the cactus to show me the trail and, and guide me. They didn't speak English. None of them spoke English, and I spoke very limited Spanish. But I didn't care about that either. I just figured, you know, I didn't care if I walked a mile. I didn't care if I walked a day. Uh, whatever God was willing, how long and how far, I just knew that I needed to be down there. Edie Sunby here on The Intersection. You can learn more by going to themissionwalker.com. The Intersection continues now with Todd Courtney, who has co-authored, along with his wife Jackie, a series of children's books involving Max Rhymes, including Max and Molly Learn Their Manners and Max Gives Thanks to God. He visited the Faith Radio Meeting House Broadcast Center at the CBA Unite event in Cincinnati to discuss his purpose for writing children's nursery rhymes. Here now is Todd Courtney. Well, what it was was, given the science, and, and given that we had to start that low, it's like, Wow. How do I take that? How do I take, yeah. how do I take God? How do I take responsibility? How do I take manners and, and simplify that 
to this age demographic, which is really zero to seven is our age demographic based on brainwaves. And I'm like, oh my gosh, all right. Well, I just happen to be a rapper, right? I mean, don't I look the part? So, no, I happen to be able to rhyme anything. And, and so it's Jackie just gives me pictures and this, and I, I just start rhyming. So what I do, <laughs> it, I, so I take that, uh, that knowledge, whatever topic we decide to write a book on, if it's responsibility or manners or whatnot, I'll go and I'll meditate and pray for about a half hour. I'll keep the headphones on when I'm ready to write, and then it just flows through. And then the, simple, the simplicity of it just comes through. The knowledge I have on this end and, and, and the rhyming aspect I have on this end come together, and then out come these books. <laughs> wow. So what are some of the, the stories that you tell here? Well, we, don't, we try to make it uh, based on core values. So they're not really story-based per se. Uh, like a Humpty Dumpty, mm-hmm. you know, and yeah. a lot of the old Mother Goose rhymes have a little story. Well, they have a lot of history to them, right? A little dark history to them. <laughs> and so we've, we've tried to stay away from that and, and inject, but use the same science. If you think about it, like our generation, me and my wife, we grew up with uh, Mother Goose. I could recite the whole Humpty Dumpty rhyme. And that's exactly the science we're using here. Repetition. Anybody who says something over and over again, that's why we used rhymes, because just like music and poetry and rhymes, they're designed for memorization. So these kids will have these messages, not stories per se, but the messages, messages lodged at that subconscious. Hmm. So one of them would be like, uh, I like to give thanks a hundred times a day. It makes me feel better in every single way. So when a kid has that, a child has that lodged, and then they see the pictures, and they see what Max is doing, giving thanks for the, for the flowers. He's giving thanks for the trees. He's giving thanks for the clouds. You know, simple things, but the purpose of it is to lodge that into the mind at such a deep level that as he grows, you know, to be 20 or 30 or 40, that child, or 50, whatever it is, they go around walking around doing the same thing. That's the intent and purpose of it. Hmm. So what is it about Max that causes him to connect with the readers there's a couple things the readers well this is what we're told by mothers right and all the consumers out there that have read them so far they love the images they love max they love molly they the other characters we're using different animals kenny the koala ricky the raccoon um rosie the rabbit but for some i call it godly magical whatever you want to call it they're they are connecting why they're connecting I can't tell you exactly other than they feel it, um, but they do. They tell us. We've got bloggers that tell us, mommy bloggers that have told us, and many parents who have told us, that some of the kids won't go to bed without Max Rhymes. Wow. Yeah, so something there. Something is more powerful than me, but it's working. Well, it has to do with the the connection to the creator, if you will. When we're talking about positive biblical thoughts as opposed to what perhaps the world would be offering children. Right. What are some observations you have about what might be considered negative conditioning that's oh. taking place? Everyday life, um, even what's going on inside many households, uh, what they see, what they hear on the news. The, you can't even watch the news today. I just had it on for about five minutes in my hotel room and I had to turn it off <laughs> and I don't have any kids in my room. But it, but, it, but it gets to you. Uh, I, liken the, I liken the brain of a, of a brand new child to a, uh, the metaphor of a brand new computer hard drive. It, it hasn't been plugged into the internet yet. It won't get any viruses. 
But as soon as you plug that into the internet, you get viruses. So it's the same thing with a, with a brand new baby. You know, it, as soon as the, you know, and we, we can't keep them in a bubble, although we kind of try a little bit, but we can't keep them in a bottle, bubble. But if we're successful at injecting enough positive, we need 51% or more, right? If we can get enough positive into that brain or hard drive, if you will, prior to age six, then we can try to beat those negative, you know, influences that they're hammered with. Todd Courtney here on The Intersection. You can find out more through the website, Max Rhymes, that's R-H-Y-M-E-S dot com. This is The Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. Learn more through the website, meetinghouseonline.info. There you'll find a link to the download center marked Meeting House On Demand, through which you can listen to and download full conversations from guests featured on the Intersection podcast. Also through that site, you can subscribe to the Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. Two blogs are accessible. One is The Three, with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room, with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House program. You can also follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. You can also connect to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Michael Gellin is president and CEO of Spectacular Science Productions. Formerly, he served as science editor for ABC News. Recently, he shared some information about his novel, The Null Prophecy, Integrating Science and Faith Elements. From that conversation, this is Michael Gillen. There was an event in 1859. It's called a Carrington event. And the, the coronal mass ejection just happened to come our way. It smacked the earth shortly after midnight. Uh, I think it was September 2nd, 1859. And it created a lot of damage. And so now the prediction is the next time the corona does that, the next time the corona erupts um, uh, and sends one of these CMAs, uh, CMEs our way, we're going to be worse off because back then they only had the telegraph. It was barely, you know, they didn't have a lot of electricity or anything like that the way we have today. So if we get smacked, not if, but when we get smacked with a Carrington-like event, because of the solar corona, um, we're, in, we're in serious trouble. And, and, and my novel imagines what would happen if that were to happen. So there's the tie-in. The CME, the coronal mass ejection, figures into the danger. But there are other things that are going on, uh, and, uh, and it all climaxes in a big scene in the Middle East at the end. I'm telling you... It's a book about it, it has science and it has faith. It, 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 it's a good summer read, I'm telling you. And and we're starting to get the review. You know, the book only came out two weeks ago, but we're already starting to get the reviews and people are liking it. And they're saying, my wife is telling me this because she's reading the reviews, <laughs> and she was telling me this morning. She says, what's interesting? She says, is people are loving the book. She said, but they're saying it's not like your ordinary thriller. It's different. And I said to her, ooh, praise the Lord, that's right. I didn't want to write some same-o, same-o. I, you know, I wanted to write something different, and I think that's what this is. I want to reach a large audience with this book. So I decided to create these two characters. Let's start with Ali Armendaris, and your pronunciation was perfect, Bob. Um, Thank you. Uh, Ali Armendaris is a uh, 30, she's like 32, 33, so she's a millennial. She's a Harvard uh, physicist. 
turned network television correspondent. So that should sound a little familiar to you, right? That's, that's the story of my life. I, you know, I taught physics at Harvard for like eight years, and then I got hired by ABC News to be their science correspondent. So I based, you know, I wrote, I wrote what I know. Okay, so I know science, I know television news, I know uh, what it's like to be a Christian, and you know all that sort of thing. So Allie is a Harvard physicist turned network television correspondent. And um, uh, we wanted to have her at Fox News, but we, you know, we didn't want to deal with copyright issues and all that. So we, she's the science correspondent for Fast News. We thought, okay, well, <laughs> it sounds like Fox News. Uh, and uh, she is a baby Christian. Okay, that's what's important. I didn't, want to, I didn't want to write a church lady. I wanted to write somebody who's struggling with her faith. You know, she's at the initial stages of her journey, because I wanted people to see what that's like. I wanted it to be authentic. So she's struggling with her faith, but she's on her journey. She's struggling with her family. She's struggling with personal issues. She's had something really terrible happen to her in the recent past, so she's harboring a secret, and that's affecting her behavior. Calder Sinclair, on the other hand, is a uh, really smart, reclusive inventor, okay? And he's invented a vehicle uh, that he hopes is going to change the way we travel long distances forever. It's very intriguing, based on real science, real science, no pie-in-the-sky stuff. And uh, he's angry at God. And, and you can understand why, because he's had a very rough childhood. Uh, his wife has had a freak accident, and now his one and only kid, um, 19-year-old Sarah, has just gone off to Australia to intern at Charles Darwin University. Okay, so the two people, Allie and Calder, and I love them both. I really love them both. And, you know, Calder gives as good as he gets. Allie gives as good as he gets. There's an attraction between them. They're brought together by circumstances. But they have a very different worldview. She's a woman, a budding woman of faith. So when the danger begins unraveling everything, when the world really starts facing a crisis, they see things very differently. She thinks, you know, maybe this is meant to be. Maybe, maybe, maybe this is happening for a reason. And he just dismisses it. He's like, you got to be kidding. You're, 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 you're foolish. I mean, it's just bad luck. There is no such thing as things happening for a reason. So there's a clash there that is very interesting on top of all the danger that is unfolding, Bob. So that's why I think it's a little bit of a different kind of a thriller. Michael Gillen here on The Intersection. Find out more through the website, Michael Gillen, that's G-U-I-L-L-E-N.com. More conversation now from the Faith Radio Meeting House Broadcast Center at the 2017 Unite event in Cincinnati. Ronald Winters stopped by to discuss some of the concepts he relates in his novel, The Forum, A Deadly Game of Wheat and Tares. Here now from that conversation is Ronald Witters. You have a scenario where this true believer, wealthy uh, Jewish person, has has founded a TV program that appeals to those of conservative uh, belief, you know, true biblical belief, and it catches on uh, better than the world expects. And so you have the powers, the elite from Davos, steering the world toward uh, uh, unity of religions, bringing the faiths together. And the protagonist's name is uh, Barack Zahnman. What Zahnman is doing flies in the face of the, of the trends they're, they're trying to establish and trying, the unity they're trying to bring about. And so this uh, brings about adversity and uh, some physical adversity against that organization. First, there's a subtle try to, you know, to, to sway them over to join, join with us. 
and uh, you know be a part of the world community. Uh, and that, that it's a community that has a very liberal uh, interpretation of, of religion, of, of scripture, mm-hmm. of the faith. Yeah. And so we have uh, this resistance from uh, the Zahnman group. He has a team of uh, six uh, colleagues under him who are, have connections to the intelligence community. Uh, they're true believers. And what heightens, uh, I think, the uh, excitement of the story is uh, the fact that they discover that one of the six is maybe a, a Judas. Who that person is, is is interesting to follow. You see the activities of the person, but you're not sure which one it is until the, the end of the book. Interesting. Yes. <laughs> so, so you have this guy, Zahnman. He yes. is a Jew. Yes. But his aim with this television program, popular TV program called The Forum, it is, what would you say would be the main goal of this, uh, or the object of this particular program? Well, he he's, he brings the clergy, leading clergy. This also is a little bit of a commentary about the hyper grace movement uh, in Christendom. Uh, those that are, have a liberal, uh, real liberal approach to uh, being saved, and so he brings these leading clergymen together on the show, and you have this these dialogues, uh, these bishops uh, answering questions from the public that hit on some of the. Uh, sensitive areas in the church today, uh, you know, some of the uh, things that pertain to the uh, gay move, movement and other sensitive areas. Mm-hmm. And so you have these uh, opposing views, but you see that uh, his leading team member is very much on the side of one of the bishops who have a very uh, uh, conservative view of the, of the scripture. And the Zahnman group it leans heavily in that direction. So you get the, the airing of these uh, issues in the church among the bishops. Uh, but the strong leaning of the of the of Zahnman and the group, uh, his group, is uh, uh, toward the conservative view of yeah. the scripture. Yes. So, so Zahnman tends to lean toward the conservative view of the scriptures. Then you have this other group that is trying to, can I say it like this, co-opt the Forum Television Show for its own purposes to to kind of set up or establish a more liberal world globalist type uh, religion? Yes. They is, want, that, is that right? Well, they want him to join. His show is catching on. What they're doing is at, at the religio-political uh, level mm-hmm. and uh, they're bringing uh, people from the Vatican and other organizations together globally and they're wanting Zahnman just to get on board with them. And eventually yeah. in the story there, they do offer him uh, a, a show and uh, then again, there's there's more conflict there. Yes. Well, I can't help but think about this, and you were you talked about it earlier. So I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of step out on this because you're talking about your theology and how you look at the end times. Mm-hmm. We recognize that in the Book of Revelation, it talks about a one world religion. Mm-hmm. Are you sending the message, perhaps, that? There are those that are trying to co-opt the, the church, the body of Christ, and to try to make us, I guess, one of the streams in this whole one-world religious tapestry. Well, I, I, I think it's sometimes subtle. I think uh, we have problems that need to be dealt with, and I think the kind of a graduation over to that kind of thinking that's a, that, that frequently comes into uh, uh, situations that are contrary to what the scripture says. Mm-hmm. Now, I think the world is is moving in that direction, a more liberal uh, attitude toward uh, the you know literal interpretation of the scripture. And I think at, a, at a somewhat of a subtle le- level, there is this pull in that direction. 
uh, of compromise and uh, uh, reinterpreting what yep. Scripture said. Yep. And I think we are, in some places, are sliding in that direction. And I think that is a danger sign there. Ronald Winters here on The Intersection. The book is available at Amazon.com. Find out more by visiting Meeting House On Demand when you go to meetinghouseonline.info. Well, Mandy Ankai is Government Affairs General Counsel for the Family Research Council. In a recent conversation, she discussed President Trump's announcement that transgender individuals would no longer be allowed to serve in the U.S. military. From that conversation, here now is Mandy Ankai. On the floor of the House of Representatives, uh, Mrs. Hartzler, who's from Missouri, offered an amendment to you. Um, it wasn't addressing all care for transgender persons, but only um, refusing to provide taxpayer dollars for gender change efforts. So sex reassignment surgery and hormone therapy intended to change the gender of an individual, um, noting that the military had other priorities. Um, our cost estimates here at Family Research Council is that um, over the next 10 years, it would be about $3.7 billion in costs for sex reassignment surgery, hormone therapy, and also time lost um, for recuperating from sex reassignment surgery for um, the military. And, and the taxpayers are footing that bill, $3.7 billion over the next 10 years. And unfortunately, in a vote of 209 to 214, that amendment failed. Um, so. Uh, it was definitely a disappointment, but thankfully President Trump has stepped in and uh, made that policy change from from his office. As you read and view some of this reaction in Washington, D.C., you would have thought that President Trump, in making this announcement early this week, had basically reversed a policy that had been in effect since the American Revolution, that transgender individuals could serve in the U.S. military. It's basically, as I understand it, restoring the policy that had existed up until last summer. And of course, there's been the criticism of this announcement by the president as far as the implementation. And yes, some things do need to be worked out by the Pentagon, by the Defense Department. But but what was the essence of, of this order that was issued by the president earlier this week or this, I, I guess you could say, uh, this announcement? Just like you said, it's really returning things to the status quo. So only for about a year have we had this policy that didn't treat gender dysphoria as the mental condition that it is. Gender dysphoria um, is the condition that um, is associated with being a transgender individual. Um, And it's in the Diagnostic Statistical Manual that individuals use for diagnosing mental and medical conditions. And it was previously a disqualifying condition. So individuals that identify as having uh, gender dysphoria were not permitted to serve in the military. And essentially what President Trump's uh, policy by tweets did is essentially reinstate that that policy. And he's given the, the Department of Defense 60 days to find out how to implement, uh, fully implement the policy. And um, from what I understand, no changes would be made before that 60 days has expired. But it's definitely an important status quo to return to for um, in part for for costs, like we've already talked about, but also because of the privacy concerns that are associated with having anatomical males in showers, communal showers with uh, biological females. So there are definitely a lot of issues involved in this policy, and I think it was the right decision of the president to um, to return the status quo that we've had for um, basically the history of the country over other than the last year of, of President Obama's presidency. 
and from the standpoint of the Family Research Council, speaking into our culture with that underlying Christian principle, that worldview perspective that that you guys really approach issues from, and of course, from my standpoint as well as you you look at the obviously the moral objections with respect to the practice of transgenderism, but there are also some other concerns from a from a military standpoint. How having transgender people in the military actually affects a number of different aspects of military life. Talk about that, if you would. Sure. I mean, a person that's undergoing a a gender transition really never stops undergoing that transition. So once they begin hormone therapy, they have to remain on hormone therapy for the remainder of their lives. Um, Once they have sex reassignment surgery, they have to remain on hormone therapy for the remainder of their lives. So they're under ongoing medical care. Um, and that means basically that they're likely non-deployable. So individuals that are on ongoing care or like transgender individuals have um, drugs that they require that have to be refrigerated like the hormones, um, they're not deployable. So these individuals that are serving in the military um, aren't able to serve with equity with how everyone else is required to serve. And in addition, the Department of Defense issued instructions last year that basically provided transgender individuals the opportunity to have exceptions to policy is what they're called, which means basically that transgender individuals get a lot of, of, of opportunities to essentially violate standards that everyone else has to meet, which everyone can understand is going to have a negative impact on morale and unit cohesion uh, when individuals are treated without fairness, essentially. Mandy and Kai here on The Intersection. The Family Research Council website is frc.org. Well, we are nearing the end of this edition of The Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. There's a link marked Meeting House On Demand. That goes to the Download Center where you can listen to and download full conversations with recent guests featured on the Intersection Podcast. You can also subscribe to the podcast and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes. Two blogs can be accessed. Plus, you can follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. You can also get connected to video content, including content from the CBA Unite event in Cincinnati. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Thanks for joining me. I'm Bob Crittenden.